This is Sean Jablonski, and you're listening to Inside Oz. Five hours to dawn, and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of sticks. And you know, you know, you're so fucking clean and righteous, man. You said, I, I, I got demons clawing at my ass. The streets I was selling dope, as bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking kill the cop! Fuck you, governor. And what is your problem, man? I'm just fucking up. I wish I could, man. I got potatoes to peel. Yeah, you give me a phone number and an address. Bet you wouldn't mind that. Yeah, thanks for the stimulating conversation, guys. You guys like goats. You know, you got to bring everything down to the level of a goat. Titties and humping. Sex offender. Shit all over, man. I don't know. It's not normal. I am black. I am a Muslim and I am a man. And sometimes those two things, they won't. It's about the whole horrid judicial system. And welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Before we get going with today's episode, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone for all the feedback that has been sent to me from the last episode. It's great to have you all back for Series 2, and it's great to be back too. So today we are going to be looking back at Series 2, Episode 2, Ancient Tribes. Originally broadcast on July 20th, 1998, and holding an 8.2 on IMDb, it was written by Tom Fontana and... Hold on a minute, what's this? But first for the shows, we have a new type of writing credit. So not only did Tom Fontana write the episode, he also wrote the teleplay, more commonly known as the screenplay, along with Sean Jablonski, who you heard at the start of the show in what is his first credited writing role. Prior to us, Sean had worked in a number of different crew roles, most notably as Tom Fontana's assistant on Homicide from 1995 to 1997. Sean does have another credit on us, so I will cover more of his career next time out, and the episode was directed by Yuli Idel. Born April 11th, 1947, and born in Nuremberg am Rhein, Germany, Idel studied theatre science in Munich and was later accepted into the Munich Film School. Getting his start on TV in Germany on titles, which I'm going to avoid trying to pronounce so as to not offend anybody, Idel's first English language work came when he directed 1989's Last Exit to Brooklyn, based on Hubert Shelley's controversial novel of union corruption and violence from 1964, and a film which won Idel Best Director awards at both the Bavarian and the German Film Awards in 1990. Other TV directing credits include episodes of Twin Peaks and Tales from the Crypt, and in 1995 he made TV movie biographies for HBO and Mike Tyson, starring Michael J. White as the former heavyweight champion and Rasputin Dark Servants of Destiny, which won a Golden Globe Award. Idel also directed four episodes of Homicide Life on the Street for the show's fifth and sixth seasons, but this is his only credit for Oz, and I will cover more of his career at the end of the show. So without further ado, let's get on with the episode. So, there used to be this tribe, the Aztecs, who believed that the universe was created by violence. Every year at what was their version of Christmas, they would cut out someone's heart and offer it up to the gods. These people were convinced that without their sacrifice, the sun would fall from the sky and the world would come to an end. Then the Spaniards landed and wiped the Aztecs off the face of the earth. Turns out they was right. The world did come to an end. For them. Welcome to Oz. Ten months after the world ended. So as I'm sure you've all guessed by now, we start with Augustus's monologue. And here he is talking about the Aztecs and their demise at the hands of Spanish invaders, which occurred in an expedition by Hernan Cortes between 1519 and 1521. 
He also reveals that it's been ten months since the riot, or since the world ended, as he puts it, and we see McManus turning the lights back on in a freshly refurbed M-City, which they've decided to paint exactly the same as the last one. The inmates arrive back with their belongings, Saeed being right at the front of the line, perhaps still showing himself as the leader of the inmates, and McManus gathers everyone together so that he and Leo can give a welcome back speech. Alright, a lot of people thought we'd never reopen Emerald City, but after almost a year, a lot of politicking, ball busting, and some backup from the warden, here we are. It's a new deal, gentlemen. It's a better deal. It's a fair deal. Now, I have identified ten groups. The Muslims, the gangsters, the Latinos, the Italians, the Irish, the Aryans, the bikers, the Christians, the gays, and one called the others. Each group will have four prisoners living in M-City. No more, no less. Each group will be equal. Each individual, equal. Bullshit. No, it is not bullshit. And to make sure that it's not, I'm also establishing a council to air grievances, to advise me. Each group will have one member serve on said council. Any questions? Yes. Given all that's happened, why did you come back? Why do you still believe Emerald City will work? Well, the truth is this. We either learn to change or we repeat our mistakes. We either become a part of our community or we remain isolated from it. In either case, the success of our lives depends on us. I am not solely responsible to make M-City work. It's you too. Any other questions? So McManus lays out his plan of how everybody in M-City is going to be equals from now on, and how it's not just down to him to make M-City work. Despite everything that happened and very nearly losing his life, he's still determined to see his vision work, and he is very clear that this is a fresh start for everybody, staff and inmates alike. This scene also works to establish all the different groups within the block, some of which we see a lot of, others only every now and again. I also really like that there is just a group of misfits that don't quite fit in with anyone else, and are therefore just quote-unquote, the others. Welcome to... The Others. Yeah! Arif is talking to Saeed, and he says that he feels that Saeed should be the Muslim's representative on the council. But Saeed tells him that it depends on if they plan to participate, and that maybe their absence will speak louder than their presence. Meanwhile, Adabizi is formulating a plan to start to sell drugs again. So not everyone is taking this fresh start from McManus on board? Kenny asks him what about O'Reilly, but Adabizi tells him that he'll handle Ryan. With that, we move across to Ryan, who is saying the same thing to his new cellmate, Timmy Kirk. More on him another time. And we find out why Ryan had his beanie hat on last episode. While the show was off the air after the first season, Dean Winters had to grow his hair out into this lovely 50s throwback Elvis Presley do that he has here. When the show came back the following year, and with episode 1 being set in the immediate aftermath of the riot, this new hairstyle didn't make any sense. So they had to come up with a way of covering it up, and much like they did with Terry Kinney in the first series with McManus' baseball cap, they slapped a beanie hat on Ryan for the first episode. With episode 2 having a time jump of 10 months, Ryan's new look made a lot more sense. And you also see it with a number of other cast members too, like with Beach's epic new sideburns and goatee beard. Ryan tells Timmy that he's worried about the Italians coming in. Timmy asks him why, as he doesn't see Nino anywhere, and Ryan says that Nino is dead. So that is the first that we have heard of Nino being dead. Obviously I mentioned a few episodes back about Nino having made his final appearance, but the last we saw of him was in the hospital. Taking his place as the leader of the Italian group is Nino's son, Peter, played by Eddie Malavaca. 
who we saw way back in episode 2 of the first series, who at that point was on the outside. But at some point in between, he's been imprisoned himself. And in what I'm sure is just an amazing coincidence, ended up exactly where his old man has just left. He's down on the bottom floor playing cards with the rest of the Italian group, including fellow new cellmate Chucky Pancamo. Peter is saying that they are going to seize control of the drug trade and also find out who killed Nina. As we pan across to Miguel, who is saying that everyone is going to learn that the Latinos aren't going to be messed around anymore. So straight away, you've got five groups all competing for power in the new M-City, and none of them seem to have mutual enemies, which allows for some interesting potential partnerships. It also links well to Augustus' narrations throughout the episode about the Aztecs and the invading Spanish Empire. One person who doesn't seem too thrilled with his new group, however, is Augustus. He's given out about how the fuck did I end up being another, and shouts about how he was as bad as anyone on the streets and how he killed a cop. Ribida tells him that it's because he's disabled, and Augustus fires back saying that the rest of them are certifiable, and we are then introduced to fellow newbie Agamemnon Boost Malles, aka The Mole, played by Tom Mardorosian. Ribido asks why he's called the Mole, and Boost Malice tells him that he can dig out of anywhere, and he plans to dig his way out of Oz. I loved how he introduced himself by his real name, and then added the nickname, which he has clearly given himself. Nobody has ever called him the Mole. I really like this scene, and I thought it did a great job of re-establishing existing cast members, introducing the new ones, and establishing all the different groups within the prison. And it did feel like someone had pressed a big reset button. We've had the Riot story arc, and that has been put to bed now, and this is very much the proper start of the new series. We cut to Augustus talking with McManus in the hallway, and he is not pleased about being in the others. He calls them a bunch of clowns and how they're all crazy, especially Beecher, and says never mind about all that shit that he did to Schillinger, which is a great play on words that seems to go by unnoticed. But how Beecher bit a guy's dick off, and we get a quick flashback to what Beecher did to Robson. McManus tells him that that was ten months ago, but Augustus says that he has to share a pod with him and sleep with one eye open. McManus mentions that Sister Peter said that Beecher is responding to therapy, and Augustus wheels himself off in a huff, saying, well, let her bunk with him then. Night falls on M-City, and we see Beecher tossing and turning in his bed as Augustus is true to his word and is very much awake. Beecher gets down from the top bunk, and Augustus puts his hand over his groin as he's scared of what Beecher is going to do, which is a funny sight considering we know that Augustus has no feeling in that part of his body. But Beecher just goes for a piss, and Augustus relaxes a little bit. The first council meeting gets underway, and McManus allows one of the inmates to keep the notes for the meeting. So he is keeping to his word about this being a joint effort from him and the inmates. He acknowledges about how most of the inmates had raw deals growing up, and that he wants to give everyone a chance to turn their lives around, starting with getting a decent education, the lack of which is often cited as being a key contributor to crimes taking place. He mentions about over half of the inmates in Oz not having a high school education, and that the federal prison system has had mandatory education programs in place since 1982. In his editorial for the Christian Science major in March 2001, Robert Ellis Gordon, a former teacher at prisons in Washington State from 1989 to 1997, wrote about a study for the National Institute of Justice which followed 105,000 prisoners in their first few years of their release. The study's findings showed that 66% of the group were re-arrested for a felony or a serious misdemeanor within three years of their release. Of those who volunteered to get a high school diploma whilst in prison, that number dropped to 45%. Those who received a two-year college degree whilst in prison, the rate dropped to 27.5%, and those who received a four-year college degree whilst in prison, the rate was 12.5%. Peter mentions about an education system already being in place, but McManus reiterates that it isn't mandatory, and that he is going to make it mandatory in ours. Miguel seems more focused on getting conjugals brought back, which gets a big response from the group, so Ryan tries his hand and mentions about cigarettes, but Mamanis tells them one thing at a time. 
Due to there being more students, he's saying that they're going to need more teachers and he's asking for volunteers due to a lack of budget. He asks Jonathan Cushane, who it states in his file as having been a high school teacher in the past, and he asks him to help out, which Cushane agrees to. Manas heads back to his office, but passes Saeed on the way and he asks why the Muslims weren't represented at the council meeting. Saeed questions him about whether or not the council holds any real power, saying that if it does then the group will participate, but he also asks about whether or not they get to make policy, or just give the okay for McManus's policies. McManus tells him this is a prison, not a democracy, and says that he meant what he said about second chances, and he wants to do things right. He tells Saeed that if you don't want to participate, that's fine, just don't get in my way. Saeed tells him that they will never be allies, and it would be better for McManus to transfer him back to Genpop, and he walks away. McManus runs after him and tells him that when he was laid up in the hospital, he realised that both of their gods weren't so different in that they expect the best from both of them, and for them to find the best in each other. So it doesn't look like Saeed is going back to Genpop anytime soon. Saeed tells McManus that he has written a new book about the riots, and it's due to be published next month. And he says that when he was writing it, he tried to find the best in McManus, but all he found was a confused, frightened little man. McManus says that he was both of those things, but you start to see things differently after taking a bullet in the chest. And he says that people can change, even himself and Saeed. McManus then goes to see Kenny in the kitchen and walks over Kenny's freshly mopped floor. Kenny! McManus, you're fucking up my floor, McManus! That's alright. My dick, you don't have to mop it up again! And he then asks what Kenny's plans are for when he gets out of Oz. Kenny implies that he has connections and he's going to go back to selling drugs, but McManus makes him an offer of taking Kenny off of cleaning duty so long as he goes back to classes and earns his GED, which is a general education diploma, and earns Kenny the basic qualifications needed to get work on the outside. McManus tells him that it's Kenny's choice, and Kenny tells him that he'll think it over. Back in M-City, McManus continues on his rounds and sits down to have a talk with Poet. Hey! What you working on there? Working on a poem. It's a poem? <laughs> yeah. It ain't finished yet, though. Got any words for it? Up here. Yeah. You never write them down. It's easier like this. Why don't you read it to me? I got I, I gotta keep away from these these motels. These cockroach motels. But I ain't going out like that. You see us us cockroaches, we've been around <laughs> since the beginning of time. Now I'm letting loose on a little bit of crime. Look. These motherfucking motel makers, they shook, but I ain't getting caught. I ain't from the silly sort who venture too far from the nest, you can't test, I'm saying. I gotta play the deep, dark, lower-level funk for a sec, the old illy ill shit, get that mental in check. Prisoner number 96J332, Arnold Jackson, a.k.a. Poet. Convicted February 15th, 96. Armed robbery, attempted murder, possession of a deadly weapon. Sentence, 16 years. Up for parole in nine. So this is the first time we're hearing about why Poet is in Oz, and we get his crime flashback alongside him reading some poetry to McManus. Now ordinarily I would introduce the actor when we get his prisoner introduction, but I did this for Poet back in episode 6 to your health, so I won't go back over old ground here too much. You might remember I mentioned about Craig Grant being one of the cast members on the show who had served time in real life. I actually asked Grant about that on social media, and he was polite enough to respond to my question. I asked him, is it true that prior to appearing in Oz, you served time in prison in real life? And he replied, Being a black male, I've been arrested in my youth, of course. I've been in jail briefly, but I've never been to prison, nor have I served time. So, straight from the man himself, arrested, but not completely incarcerated. McManus tells Poet that he wants him to start coming to classes and get his diploma, similar to what he was offering Kenny a moment ago. But Poet seems reluctant and tries to walk away, but McManus makes Poet an offer. 
He says that if Poet starts going to class and earns his GED, he'll arrange a conjugal visit. Poet says that he isn't even married and asks if there are rules against that sort of thing, but Mamana says fuck the rules and offers to shake Poet's hand to seal the deal. Poet has a quick look around to see if anybody is watching him. Obviously, if he is seen shaking hands with a staff, somebody might misinterpret that and think that Poet is acting as an informant for McManus. And he obviously doesn't want to take that risk because he knows what happens when informants get found out. Instead, he verbally agrees to the deal, which McManus accepts. We move up to one of the classrooms where Kashin is teaching a class on grammar and asks for somebody to read aloud. Unsurprisingly, nobody is volunteering, so he picks Kenny at random and then explains about the exercise of building a vocabulary list. Kenny and Timmy exchange petty insults before Kushin comes back and asks Kenny to read. And Kenny tries to pass off the task to Timmy instead, but Kushin wants Kenny to read. Kenny tells him that he said no, but Kushin persists with trying to get him to read. Obviously, there is a reason why Kenny doesn't want to read, and we'll get to that in a moment, but in the meantime, Kenny grabs Kushin by the neck and pushes him against the wall. An officer declares a lockdown and the sort storms in. So the sort seems to be ready to go at a moment's notice now rather than having to be called upon when something breaks out. Perhaps that was one of the conditions of M-City being reopened. I'm not sure and it isn't made too clear. McManus runs over from his office and asks what caused all this and Kashin explains that all he did was ask for Kenny to read aloud and McManus asks Kenny taken to his office. So we cut to said office and McManus is asking Kenny why he attacked Kashin and we get another of Terry Kinney's amazing bullshits. Bullshit! McManus then grabs a book and asks Kenny to read, but Kenny once again refuses to do so. He then heads over to the whiteboard and writes McManus on it and asks Kenny what it says. Kenny is reluctant at first but eventually takes a long look at the word and we get a close-up on the whiteboard. And because I'm a big kid I just had a chuckle to myself as the screen had a massive anus on it. Kenny has a stab at the word and he thinks that it says McDonald's. But Manus has Kenny taken back to his cell, and then he goes to meet with Leo. So we cut to Leo's office, where he's saying that he wants Kenny in the hole. But Manus is making a defence for Kenny on the basis that he can't read, not that he wouldn't, and then says that he is going to teach Kenny to read. Leo makes the point about how it used to be illegal to teach a slave to read, which is true. The southern states had a number of anti-literacy laws during the American Civil War, largely coming into force in 1829. The white public that lived in the south were already fearful following the Haitian Revolution in 1804 and the Denmark Vesey in 1822. Between 1829 and 1834, the states of Alabama, Louisiana, Virginia, Georgia, and North and South Carolina passed their anti-literacy laws, with violations of the law resulting in fines, floggings, and jail time in some cases. The state of Missouri also passed anti-literacy laws in 1847. The laws were not just limited to the South, however. In 1833, abolitionists founded a boarding school for African-American girls in Canterbury, Connecticut, but the state soon outlawed the instruction of students who were deemed not inhabitants of the state because of their skin colour, and the school was burned down shortly afterwards. Leo tells McManus that he can't force somebody to learn, but McManus says that he is going to try, and Kenny, being about 17 years old at this point and unable to read, is a damning reflection of the US education system at the time. According to studies in 1998 when this episode aired, the percentage of adults in the US, defined as being aged 15 years and over, with a low literacy level stood at 49.6%, the seventh highest in the world at the time. Cut to night time and we get Augustus narrating about Montezuma II, who was a ruler during Cortez invasion that I mentioned earlier, as we see an officer open Kenny's pod and drag him out. He takes Kenny to McManus's office, who sits Kenny down at a desk and pulls out a learning to read book as we close out Act 1. 
I really enjoyed this first act. You really do get a feeling that this is a new start for the prison, and there are some good funny moments in there too. We also get a bunch of new characters introduced, we quickly get an idea of what their motives are going forward, and in a lot of ways this is the Tim McManus show. He seems to have accepted that M-City didn't work the first time round, and he is setting out to make it a success no matter what. Like Augustus mentions in his narration, you have to fight even if you know you're going to lose. But he doesn't just want the prison to operate and the inmates just serve their sentence. He wants them to leave as better people than when they came in. The Aztecs, they have this king, Moctezuma II. That's the halls of Montezuma guy. One night, Moctezuma saw this flaming ear of corn shoot across the sky. A comet. Moctezuma saw this comet as an omen. A sign of his own downfall. And so he surrendered his empire to the Spanish conquistadors without a fight. Stupid fuck. You gotta fight, even if you know you're gonna lose. You know what this is called? Learning to read. Lesson one. So Act 2 gets underway in the kitchen with Ryan and Adebisi investigating the appearance of some rat shit. Adebisi picks up one of the lumps with a spoon, which you just know is going back in with the other cutlery later on, says it must be a big fucking rat, and then asks Ryan to smell it. I love Ryan's disgusted look as Adebisi shoves it in his face. Adebisi mentions that they'll have to put some traps down and kill it, but Ryan says that along with cockroaches, rats will inherit the earth and that you can't kill them. Pancamo enters the scene and in what must be the most typical Italian-American accent ever, shouts... Oh, what's the fucking hold-up? Pancamo here is played by Chuck Zeta. Now, this guy has one hell of a story, but I will cover that more in depth when we get to his crime flashback. He asks, which one of you Moolies is the cook back there? And Moolie is a derivative term used by Italian immigrants for a black person. Ryan takes exception to being called such a thing, and asks what Pancamo's problem is. Chucky tells him that the food sucks and says that Peter Shibetta is going to be making some changes. Adebisi chimes in asking, who Shibetta? And Chucky tells him that he's talking to the Mick, which is a derivative term for an Irishman. Not exclusive to Italian immigrants, that one, though. So within the space of a couple of lines of dialogue, Pancamo has busted out two racist terms and talked down to Adebisi in the process. So his bad guy persona has been established very quickly. Pancamo says that Peter wants the kitchen back, and Adebisi says that he can if he sucks his dick. But Pancamo warns him that if he isn't careful, he won't have a dick to suck, and then leaves. Ryan asks whether or not the Italians might be aware that they killed Nina, but Adebisi tells him to forget about it, and he will take care of them the same way he took care of Nina. Cut to Ryan going to meet with Shibetta in the gym, and Pancamo cuts him off with, Oh, where are you going? So that's two O's already from Pancamo. I can tell I'm gonna have to keep a track of those. Ryan tells Peter that he knows who killed his father, saying that it was Adebisi, and then explains about the ground glass in Nino's food. Peter asks him how he knows that, and Ryan says that he saw Adebisi do it, and that when Adebisi wasn't looking, he did the same to Adebisi's food. But no one seems to question why Adebisi is still alive, if that were the case. On Peter's order, the other Italians grab Ryan and hold him down on a bench. Peter holds a dumbbell over Ryan and asks if he killed his father, but Ryan protests his innocence and says that he was trying to kill Adebisi because he is out of control and stores up most of the drugs that are brought into Oz. He tells Peter that he helped Nino in the drug trade when Nino was alive and figures that maybe they could do the same. Peter tells his soldiers to let Ryan up, so he seems to have bought Ryan's story for now, and says that if Adebisi killed his father then he'll take care of him and asks Ryan to leave so that he continue his workout. He refers to Adebisi as a Moulignan, which is another Italian racist term. Ryan reminds Peter that he is there for him and then leaves. 
Pancamo asks if Peter believes him, but Peter says that all rats know when to desert a sinking ship. He says that Ryan is a smart guy, but still a rat, and tells Pancamo to keep an eye on him. So this is something that we have seen from Ryan in the past. He has no specific loyalty to anybody and looks out for himself first and foremost, but he's very cunning and tries to stay one step ahead of everyone else. Peter, much like Nina, has questions about Ryan's motives, but he is willing to overlook them in case a potential partnership with Ryan can arise and benefit himself. We then get Peter's flashback in which he is arrested on five counts of extortion and money laundering and is sentenced to 35 years, up for parole in 20. Peter Shibeta is played by Eddie Malavaka. I couldn't find a whole lot of information about him other than a birthday listing him as being born on January 1st, 1968, and that he played the part of Buzz in a play called Crossing Borders, but again, very little information about that to be found, and the only other information I could find was his filmography, which is a shame, as I like to document a cast member's journey to Oz as best I can. But what I did find out is that prior to Oz, Eddie only had a couple of acting credits to his name, appearing as the character Porky in 1995's Animal Room, and a bit part in 1997's comedy horror Office Killer, as well as appearing in episode 2, Visits Conjugal and Otherwise. It would be interesting to know if Peter joining the show was necessitated by Tony Masante leaving the show after series 1. The fact that it's taken this long to get confirmation that Nino has actually died could have come from not knowing whether or not Nino would be brought back when Series 2 was being written. Bringing Peter back to replace Nino will have been a simple yet logical fix to replace the Nino character. Also, these crime flashbacks usually end with the inmate in some sort of shot with Augustus, who is narrating the information, and in this one we see Peter throwing some money around. But the way they transition in and out of this flashback segment, they use a Star Wars-like screen wipe. It just seemed really odd and out of place from what we've seen before. Normally it cuts with a flash of white on the screen, but this really stuck out and it looked pretty cheap if I'm being honest. So we've screen wiped into Leo's office where he is meeting with Peter, who is brought in by Officer Armstrong, who's back at work after the riot and still sporting his amazing moustache. It's open. Thank you, officer. You want me in or out? Out, please. Sit there. You're a tough man to reach all of a sudden. What does that mean? I'm here three weeks. This is the first time you'd see me. What do you want? A return favor. What kind of favor? I want the kitchen. Me and my guys will run it from now on. Why? Because I'm asking. That's how it works between us now. No. The way it works is you're in my prison. I don't take orders from you. You take them from me. This doesn't have to be complicated. All I have to do is make one phone call. I know. Your father. He was a respectable man. We got along. And he never would have pulled his shit with me. My father? Lived by a code that doesn't exist anymore. A code that got him killed. I do things my way, and I'm asking for a favor in return for a favor you owe me. So what's it gonna be? All right. We're gonna have the kitchen. Thank you, Leo. Warden Glenn. We're done here. Officer Armstrong? Back in the kitchen, and Adabezi is rummaging through the utensils to find a knife. 
Probably best we don't ask why. Could be any number of reasons, and not necessarily kitchen-related. Leo comes over and tells Adebisi that Peter will be running the kitchen from now on. Adebisi reluctantly accepts the change and tells Leo to let Peter know that the kitchen has rats, as he lifts up a crate and we see a rat inside. Adebisi then impales the rat with a kitchen fork, and there's a quick shot of the gruesome aftermath as we close out the relatively short Act 2. Again, it's probably best we don't know why Adebisi was looking for a knife, especially as he already had a fork. Adebisi! Hey, Adebisi! Peter Shabetta will be running the kitchen from now on. Shabetta? Why are you giving that guinea my job? Because I can. Alright. Well, you tell that guinea fuck something for me then. We got rats. Act 3 gets underway in the ward where Gloria is unwrapping Schillinger's bandage from his eye. She explains that the doctor thinks that the surgery was successful and that he'll have a scar, but his sight should be nearly fully restored. She removes the final piece of bandage and asks Schillinger to open his eye. He covers up his good eye and opens the damaged one. Gloria asks if he can see, and he says that he can with a huge look of relief on his face. Schillinger returns to M-City and is greeted by some of the other members of the Brotherhood, as we see Beecher looking down from the walkway. For the first time in a long time, Beecher and Schillinger lock eyes as we get a flashback to Beecher getting his swatch sticker tattoo. In Sister Pete's office, we see Beecher working, but he's looking pretty tired and says to her, let's go get a martini. He recounts about how he and his lawyer buddies would head over to McSwaggins for vodka martinis after a hard day's work, but Sister Pete politely reminds him that too many martinis is what landed him on us in the first place. By the way, McSwaggins, not a real bar, and don't Google it either, because you'll get a load of memes that, if you're over the age of 12, probably don't make any sense. Diane knocks at the door and asks for Schillinger's psychiatric profile so that she and McManus can go over it before the parole hearing. And she also seems to be in the new haircut gang too, as her hair is noticeably longer than before. Sister Pete says that she needs another day on it, and asks Beecher to pull it up on the computer while she nips off to the ladies' room. Diane seems surprised that Sister Pete leaves Beecher unattended in her office, and Beecher fires back with, what do you think I'm going to do? Start a riot? Take hostages? But Diane doesn't have an answer and leaves. So, even though we're months removed from the riot and the prison is operating again, it is still fresh in people's minds. Sister Pete leaving Beecher alone with access to people's files is a whole other can of worms. He could be writing and changing anything in there. We get a quick scene in the visitation room where Schillinger is meeting with Papa Schillinger. He gets the news that his dad has kicked both of his sons out of the house due to their drug use, and that they have been stealing from him to fund their habit. They continue to argue, and we get a great line from Schillinger as his dad walks out on him. You listen to me, you stupid old bastard. You find them. You find my sons. And then what? Bring them to Oz for a little heart-to-heart? Hey, don't you walk away, you cocksucker! Come on, Dad! Get the fuck back here, Dad! Dad! God damn it, Dad! You find my boys! Back in M-City, and Beecher comes over to Schillinger, who is reading at a table. He takes a look at Schillinger's eye, saying that he knew it would leave a mark, and asks Schillinger what he's reading. He mentions Mein Kampf and drops a spoiler, telling Schillinger that it ends with the Aryans getting their ass kicked. And oh, if only that was true. Mein Kampf, meaning My Struggle, was Adolf Hitler's autobiography written whilst he was in prison in what he called political crimes, following a failed coup by the Nazis in Munich, Germany in 1923, commonly referred to as the Beer Hall Putsch. Published as two volumes in 1925 and 1926, the book outlined his political ideology and his plans for the future which of course eventually led to World War II in 1939. 
After slow sales upon initial release, the book became a bestseller in 1933 as Hitler rose to power. Following Hitler's suicide in 1945, sorry conspiracy theorists, he didn't escape to Argentina, the copyright for the book passed to the Bavarian state government, who banned any copying or printing of the book in Germany. Once the copyright held by the state government expired in 2016, the book was republished in Germany for the first time since 1945, and prompted debates and divided reactions from numerous Jewish groups. Beecher says that he's been doing some reading of his own and mentions about Schillinger's psychiatric profile. According to Sister Pete, Schillinger has demonstrated what she calls a genuine personality adjustment. But as Schillinger retreats to his pod, Beecher accuses Schillinger of faking so that he can make parole, and that he is going to see to it that Schillinger never leaves Oz. And he even calls Schillinger Sweet Pea, a callback to what Schillinger used to call Beecher, and a continuation of the role reversal between the two. Cut to lunchtime and Schillinger sits down with some of the other members of the Brotherhood. He asks Frank, played here by Frank Senger, that he needs a favour and that he wants Beecher dead. Frank seems reluctant, saying that he thinks Beecher is crazy. Schillinger then offers to pay him for it, but Frank thinks better of it. Schillinger then asks Mac, who similarly doesn't want anything to do with Beecher, before asking the rest of the group, who all just stay quiet and Schillinger calls them a bunch of pussies. Mac asks him why he doesn't just kill Beecher, Schillinger saying that he wishes to Christ that he could. Schillinger then proceeds to ask other inmates to do the job on Beecher, including asking the Italians, Miguel, and there's a fantastic little scene where he goes over to ask Adebisi. He taps Adebisi on the shoulder and goes to ask, but he hesitates. Adebisi just looks him up and down, and Schillinger then just abandons the idea completely. It's so funny, and it's all just done through looks and glances. It's great work from both men. These scenes also really put across how desperate Schillinger is to get Beecher out of his life. He's trying to form alliances with people that he never normally would. And in this scene with Miguel, he's offering to move drugs as part of the deal, whereas he's always been so anti-drugs in the past, and especially considering what's happening with his sons on the outside. He also quickly exposes himself as being completely insincere with some of the racist stuff that he calls Miguel when negotiations break down. He tries to seek solace in the library, but Beecher joins him once again. He tells Schillinger that the great thing about computers is that they don't know right from wrong, and they just do whatever they're told to do. And he tells Schillinger that he has access to the psychiatric files for the whole prison, and he can change them to read any way that he wants to. So, like I alluded to earlier, Beecher holds the power in this situation, and he implies that he's going to ruin Schillinger's parole hearing. Schillinger snaps and yells at Beecher to get away from him, and Diane calms the situation by telling Schillinger to take a walk, as Beecher chuckles away to himself to close the scene. Cut to a hallway where Diane has joined Schillinger on his walk, and he is describing Beecher as a bug. Diane says that all the inmates are bugs, and Schillinger then asks, yeah, well, what about you? And he reminds her that he saw her shoot Scott Ross. He then mentions about Diane's mum being sick, and how Diane could probably use some extra cash. And what is basically his last throw of the dice, he says that he wants Beecher dead that day, so that his parole hearing the following day can go off without a hitch. And he offers Diane $2,000 to do the deed. Diane says that she would need the money up front, and Schillinger offers to get it wired to her account once he makes a phone call, and she agrees to do it once she has verification. I have no idea how this plan of Schillinger's could work. Surely, in the aftermath of the riot, the prison would have put in some measures to monitor phone calls from inmates? There's no way he'd have been able to pull this off. It was also at this point that I noticed that Schillinger's parole seems to have been delayed, presumably because of the riot. He was gearing up for it at the end of the last series before Beecher shot on his face in the gym fight, and then the riot occurred shortly afterwards. But I don't see why he couldn't have still had his parole hearing whilst the inmates were all in gen pop. Unless all parole hearings were cancelled whilst the investigation into the riot was carried out. 
Also, Diane was far too quick to accept two grand as a fee to commit murder. I reckon she could have held out for 3995 call it four grand. And I realise that that's probably a reference that, if you're outside of the UK, probably doesn't make any sense. Augustus narrates about the Aztecs some more, and how they thought that the invaders on horseback was God, and that sometimes not everything is as it seems, as we see Diane enter M-City at night. Schillinger looks on as she takes a look around before giving a signal to be let into Beecher's pod. She handcuffs Beecher and escorts him away, and Beecher apparently sleeps with his belt undone and his trousers unbuckled, probably for easy access. Other inmates watch Beecher being led away as Schillinger rests his head on his pillow, grinning from ear to ear. He's probably going to have the best night's sleep he's had in a long time. The next morning arrives and we get a bunch of water cooler talk as Ryan is asking if anybody else saw what happened. Adabezi reckons that Diane and Beecher were fucking, while Rebido thinks that Diane was helping Beecher escape. Miguel also seems to think they were fucking, but adds that Beecher was going to tell someone, so Diane had Beecher whacked. And they're all doing this in earshot of Schillinger, and he seems very happy that Beecher is gone. Whether that's by being killed, escaping, or anything else. It's great how all these different theories have arisen based on what each person saw. They've all seen the same thing, yet managed to put their own spin on things. Diane and Schillinger meet up in a hallway, and Diane goes back over what the plan was, and Schillinger seems to have a bit of a spring in his step and pulls a John Gotti by going all, yep, oh yeah, that's what I asked, alright. And Diane asks him if he wants to see Beecher's body. She takes Schillinger up a flight of stairs to one of the more secluded corridors, but Beecher appears from round the corner. Schillinger looks like he's seen a ghost, and they're then joined by McManus and some guards, as Diane pulls out a dictaphone, this was the 90s after all, and plays back Schillinger admitting that he wanted Beecher dead. McManus tells him that he can forget about his parole hearing, and that he's going to be charged with conspiracy to commit murder. McManus orders Schillinger to be taken to the hall, and Beecher returns to M-City singing Merry Are the Bells, and tells Augustus about how he manipulated Schillinger, and how he is now facing another 10 years on his sentence. Meaning that Schillinger wouldn't have been released until 2010 at the earliest, as he was originally in for 8 years when convicted in 1992. As of 2018, the conspiracy to commit murder in the state of New York is now classed as a Class B felony, and carries a sentence of up to 25 years. Augustus warns Beecher that Schillinger now has more of a reason to seek vengeance. But Beecher says that he doesn't give a shit, and goes back to singing his little ditty, as we get a shot of Schillinger in the hole, completely starkers and looking sorry for himself, to close out Act 3. Merry with myself, I'm merry, I can sing, and a merry ding-dong, happy king, and free, and a merry ding-song, happy, let us be. What are you so cheerful about? You think I'm insane, right? Shit, yeah. Well, maybe I am. But every once in a while, the lawyer me still pops out. Yeah. I want a Chillinger away from me, out of M-City, but not free. So I had to figure out a way to get his parole hearing cancelled. I, I couldn't start a fight with him, or I'd get in trouble. So, I manipulated him. I got him so psycho with that, he tried to have me killed. So now, not only is Schillinger's parole chances dead, but he's facing 10 more years. <laughs> Boom! That's good, Moyle. And bad. With no hope of leaving Oz, now he's got even more reason to fuck you up. Yeah, well, thank God I'm crazy, because I don't give a shit. Merry are the bells, and merry when they ring, and merry was myself, and merry I would sing with a merry ding dong, I'd be getting free, and a merry sing song, happy let us be.
before we continue on with the rest of the show, it's time once again to play Homicide or Nomicide. So this episode sees the debuts of Chucky Pankama, played by Chuck Zeta, Agamemnon Boost Malice, played by Tom Mardorosian, Jonathan Cushane, played by Brian Callan, Timmy Kirk, played by Sean Duggan, Sarah the Secretary, played by Adrian Shelley, Louis Batista, played by Ali Merry, Mario Seggio, played by Todd Ettelson, Richie Hamlin, played by Jordan Lage, Frank Manhart, played by Frank Senger, and Heinrich Schillinger, played by Dick Bocelli. So that is a total of 10 new characters in this episode. Out of those 10, only one of them appeared in Homicide Life on the Street prior to appearing on Oz. Have a think about it, and I will let you know who it was at the end of the show. So Act 4 gets underway with Sister Pete arriving for a meeting with Leo, who is currently in a meeting with Ray, and she meets Leo's new secretary, Sarah. They exchange pleasantries as Sister Pete asks her about how she's finding the job, and Sarah says that it's fine and that Leo is a very nice man, but she had to get used to the idea of working in a prison after being terrified at first. A call for Leo from his wife comes through and Sarah passes it through to Leo, saying that it's urgent. Sister Pete says that she was scared initially when she came to Oz before Leo comes out of his office looking flustered putting on his jacket, and he leaves saying that he doesn't know when he'll be back. Ray comes out of the office too, wearing a hoodie that is about four sizes too big for him. Seriously, if that had been made of water, he'd have drowned in that thing, and he says that something is wrong. We cut to Diana McManus in one of the hallways, and he asks her if she is avoiding him. Diane says that she isn't. He says to her that he wants her to come back to work at M-City, which seems odd considering she was just in there executing the plan against Schillinger. She says that she's happy where she is, but Mamana says that he needs her. He also tells her that Schillinger is saying that she shot Scott Ross, and that he is going to testify. Diane says that the report says that Scott was shot by the sort, and that no one is going to listen to Schillinger. Mamanis asks her point blank if she shot Scott or not, Diane telling him no. Mamanis stands there in silence, and she asks him whether or not he's going to believe that Nazi's word over mine, but Mamanis remains silent. So despite telling Diane that he needs her in M-City, he still seems to be conflicted about whether he can trust her or not. The pair head into a staff meeting, but Sarah tells them that Leo is going to be unable to attend the meeting, and that he wants Sister Pete to chair in his absence. Ray asks Sarah if Leo has said anything about what has happened, but all that she knows is that Leo's daughter is in hospital, and a stunned silence falls over the meeting. Diane asks about what they should do, and Sister Pete says that they should do what Leo wants, and the meeting gets started. We cut to Leo in his office, and we see that whatever it is that he had to leave for is weighing on his mind. We don't know exactly how much of a time jump there has been here. It could be later the same day, it could be the next day, or a few days later, it isn't made clear. Sarah buzzes through and tells him that it's time to address the prisoners, and Leo takes a deep breath and adjusts his tie. Cuts to the cafeteria, where Leo is at the podium addressing the inmates. He mentions about the librarian only being available certain hours, before Miguel makes a remark about how the rest of the time she's going to be with him, making motions about how he's going to be fucking her, and he gets a big laugh from the other inmates. Leo asks him what he said, and Miguel says that he said nothing, but Leo asks one of the guards to take Miguel to his office. Back at Leo's office, and a guard brings in Miguel. Leo continues to look at his papers, as Miguel doesn't seem too sure about what to do with himself. He tries to get Leo's attention, but is unsuccessful and goes to sit down, but Leo shouts at him to get back up. Miguel asks what's going on, and Leo tells him that he has been reassigned to work in his office. Miguel asks her what he wants him to do, and Leo just tells him to wait by the door. Miguel is told to just stand there until Leo needs him to do something, and Miguel looks up to the clock, and we see that it is 12 o'clock. Miguel says that he has visiting hours at 4, and Leo gives a very subtle look like a light bulb has just gone on in his head, and he says that he knows that Miguel has a visit planned. 
We then get a bit of a montage of Leo meeting with various people and just generally going about his work, all the while Miguel has been made to wait by the door. Around the three hour mark, Miguel is starting to get a little agitated, and just before four o'clock, he's even managed to sneak in a little nap when Leo leaves the office, but he stands back up again when Leo returns. Ten to four arrives, and Miguel says that he hasn't done anything all day and that his family is coming in ten minutes. Leo says, you're right, you haven't done dick all day. He opens up a door and tells Miguel to clean his bathroom. And I have to admit that I was a little jealous that Leo has an ensuite bathroom in his office. I know we've seen it before, but it doesn't change the fact that I wish I had one at work. He tells Miguel to clean the toilet, the sink, and the floor, and that once it's spotless, he can go meet his family. Miguel asks if Leo is fucking with him, and Leo says that he is, and that the mop and bucket are inside. Miguel says something in Spanish, but I couldn't quite make it out, and no subtitle came up for it on the DVD, so not sure what he said, but I'm sure it wasn't complimentary. We get a shot of Miguel arriving at the visiting room, but it's completely empty and he kicks the side panel a couple of times. Part of me wishes there was just one last little scene of Leo inspecting the bathroom while Miguel waits, only to be told, you've missed a spot. Back in Leo's office and Miguel is having another sit down before Sarah enters the room saying, caught you, before grabbing some files from the cabinet. Miguel flirts with her for a bit, but Leo enters the office, looking similarly agitated like he did before when he had to leave after the phone call. He asks where a certain file is, but Sarah says that she can't find it, and Miguel says that she has been looking for it. Leo tells him to shut up and not to speak to Sarah. Miguel says, talk to her, I already fucked her, and Leo punches Miguel as the two then start brawling and end up on the couch. Yes, not only does Leo have ensuite facilities, he's got a couch too. Leo gets the advantage, Miguel claiming that he's been choked, and two guards arrive and pull Leo off of Miguel. Leo tells them to take Miguel to the hull, and he is led away kicking and screaming. I'm assuming that Schillinger is out of the hull at this point, otherwise that's going to be a bit awkward having them both in there completely naked. Sarah points out that Leo's lip is bleeding, and we get a shot of Miguel being thrown into the hull, son Schillinger, before we cut back to Leo in the gym working away on the heavy bag, and Sister Pete goes to talk to him. Smell of testosterone, the smell of sweat. You have something to say to me, just see it. Well, Sarah's thinking about quitting because of what happened today between you and Alvarez. Then she should quit. Well, maybe so, maybe not, but that's not the point. You know, Leo, when somebody asks me, what's the real Leo Glynn like? The first word that comes to mind? Balanced. The most balanced person I know. And the second word? Honest. Anybody else about this? You have my word. The oldest daughter, She was walking to class. She's a student, you know, at the university. They raped her. Oh my God. She's in the hospital. She's lying there with her eyes open. Some kind of shock. She's just the sweetest person on the planet, you know? I, know. I mean, I... never a bad word to say about anything. I know, I know. So, do they have any idea who did this? Witnesses. So, we saw a gang of kids. Latino kids. Ah, so some unknown Latino kid hurts Ardith and you lash out at the first Latino you see. No, no. Leo. Leo. Miguel Alvarez did not rape your daughter. And whatever else he's done before, you are too fine a man to punish him for something he didn't do. 
Leo goes back to hitting the heavy bag as we get an intercut scene of his daughter being cornered by some Latino youths. Ray heads down to the hall and Miguel is released. There is a bit of an atmosphere as this is the first time that both men have spoken to each other since the riot, and we get a quick flashback to what happened there when Miguel didn't come to Ray's aid. Miguel tries to apologise for what happened in the riot, but Ray says that he doesn't want to hear about it, and he has already forgiven Miguel, and he expects Miguel to do the same for Leo. They leave the hall and pass Leo in the hallway, and Miguel and Leo exchange a long stare at each other as if to say that this is far from over. I thought this whole segment was really well executed. Annie Hudson in particular was very good showing a more emotional side to Leo when explaining what has happened to Sister Pete. It also raises a bunch of questions about how a person would react when put in his position. We can all say, well, I'd have done this, or I'd have reacted like that. But unless you're faced with what Leo is going through, it's impossible to say what you would do in that situation. At the end of the day, he is a man of justice, and he just wants to do right by his daughter. But it's only when Sister Pete shows how much she respects his character that he's able to see that he's going about things the wrong way. It also sets up a new dynamic between Leo and Miguel, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next between them. Augustus gives us some more narration about the Aztecs and their first encounter with a cannon before we go to the gym and see Ryan working out doing some dumbbell curls. Hanlon comes over and notices a stain on Ryan's vest and asks if Ryan has spilled coffee on himself. Ryan pulls his vest aside and we see that his nipple is bleeding. He takes a moment to compose himself before heading to the infirmary. Gloria conducts an exam checking for lumps around Ryan's nipple. She asks Ryan if it hurts, but he tells her to do it again, and Gloria tells him to pack it in and continues the exam. She asks if his nipple has been sore lately, and Ryan says that it has been a little, but he put it down to the fact that he's been exercising a lot recently. She says that she is going to run some blood tests and x-rays, and Ryan asks her what she thinks it might be, but Gloria doesn't seem sure, and says that she might have to crack open a medical box. She says that she's going to keep Ryan in the ward overnight, and he seems fine with that so long as she comes to tuck him in. If you've seen the show before, and chances are you have seen it in the 20 years since it was broadcast, then you know where this is heading. If this is your first go-through of Oz, this is the kickoff to a long-running storyline between Ryan and Gloria, which takes all sorts of twists and turns. We get shots of Gloria reading through some massive books, Ryan having his x-rays, and Gloria is also on the phone, and we see that she is also in the new haircut gang for this episode. She hangs up the phone and looks a little worried. Dissolve into the next day and Ryan is playing blackjack with someone else in the ward. Gloria asks him to come into her office and she says that he's got his results back and he is going to be staying in the hospital a little while longer. She shows him one of his x-rays which is displaying a tumour near his left nipple. She says that she needs to do an aspiration and she explains what that procedure is, which is where they draw some fluid out of the nipple and look at it under a microscope. Ryan asks why she needs to do that and she says that she needs to check for a carcinoma and she tells Ryan that he may have breast cancer. Ryan tries to laugh it off at first before trying to brush it off completely by saying that girls get breast cancer. Gloria tells him that men do too, but it is rare, especially for someone of Ryan's age. According to the NHS here in the UK, it usually occurs in men over 60. Ryan starts to shout and seems to think that the cause of it is through homosexual relations, and he says that he's been in Oz for a year and never done such a thing. Gloria tries to explain to him that men have breasts same as women, but Ryan completely flips out and refuses to believe what he's been told. He tells Gloria to go back to her books and get another opinion, and once again states that he doesn't have breast cancer before he leaves. Cut to the staff room where McManus is saying that Gloria can't blame Ryan for overreacting, and even says, men with breast cancer, who's ever heard of it? Echoing what Gloria was saying about the condition being rare. According to breastcancercare.org, in the UK around 370 men are diagnosed each year. 
Of course, that figure is much lower than those for women, but it's still more than one man per day. Ray, who's traded in his oversized hoodie for a much nicer fitting leather jacket, asks if Gloria is sure about her diagnosis. And Gloria says that she's a GP and it isn't something that she comes across every day, but she has spoken to an oncologist, who specialise in the diagnosing and treating of tumours, and they are backing up Gloria's findings. McManus tells her to do the needle aspiration, but Gloria says Ryan is refusing to have it because he is in denial, and that he is going to need their help to accept what is happening to him. Sister Pete and Ray both offer to help, and they go back and forth about what the best approach is going to be before McManus says that he has the best solution to their problem, and he pulls out a coin to play heads or tails. Of course, this is one of the best ways of deciding things. My preferred method, however, is using the minute display on my TV and assigning choices on whether or not the minute is odd or even. We cut to Ryan looking in the mirror, feeling his nipple for lumps, and we get a great reveal of it being Ray who won the coin toss. He says that Gloria has told him about the cancer, but Ryan tells him to be quiet, saying that he doesn't need everyone knowing his business. Ray offers to go talk in his office instead, but Ryan says that it doesn't matter and that Gloria has the whole thing screwed up. Ray says that maybe she does, but the only way they're going to find out for sure is if Ryan undergoes a biopsy. Ryan seems more concerned about what will happen to him in M-City if he goes back with a positive diagnosis, saying that if he shows any weakness at all, then he's dead. But Ray tells him that if he doesn't do anything about it, then he'll be dead anyway, and everyone will find out the truth if the disease spreads, by which time it will be too late. Ryan sits down on his hospital bed as the realisation seems to settle in, and he folds his arms close to his chest, like he's trying to put up a barrier to protect himself. And Ray says that he's sorry, seemingly apologising for his cruel-to-be-kind approach, but sometimes that's what's needed. We see Ryan undergo the aspiration, and Gloria take a look under the microscope, as Augustus narrates about how the Aztecs were actually wiped out by the smallpox disease, which spread slowly after the Spanish invasion before a major outbreak between 1790 and 1791. We close the episode looking at Ryan's aspiration sample as we fade to black and the credits roll. So here's the funny part. The Spaniards actually exterminated the Aztecs by accident. Yeah, they had the horses and the cannons, but they also brought over smallpox. It was a disease that finally finished the job. A disease the Spanish gave the Aztecs without even knowing. In ours, we do what we can to survive, but ultimately, it doesn't matter. Life always gets in the way. So that was episode two from series two, Ancient Tribes. I really liked this episode, much more than I did the previous episode that opened the series. While there are still a couple of mentions about the riot, you do get a feeling that that storyline has been put to bed and the reset button has been hit here. You've got McManus trying to make things better for everybody and really trying to help Kenny make something of himself. You've got a new thread added to the Beecher Schillinger feud, as well as culminating with a reason for it to continue. Leo gets some decent screen time and we see the family man side of him. And Ryan gets a new storyline too, and we see him acting a little more humble rather than his usual cocky, manipulative self. On top of all that, we've got a bunch of new faces joining the cast, some featured characters, some background ones, but all of them add to the little world that is being created within M-City. And while nobody died in this episode, we did get the confirmation of Nino Shibeta having passed away from the actions of Ryan and Adebisi back in Series 1. You'll recall that I already did a segment on Tony Masante's exit from the show, but what it does mean is that Nino Shibeta is added to the death toll for Series 2. 
As mentioned by Leo during the episode, Sarah the secretary quits her job after the fight between himself and Miguel, which means that after only one appearance, Adrian Shelley also leaves the show. After her appearance on Oz, Shelley continued to act with credits for Law and Order, Revolution No. 9, and The Atlantis Conspiracy, as well as writing and directing the films I'll Take You There in 1999 and Waitress in 2007, which she wrote while pregnant with her daughter Sophie, who also appeared in the movie. Waitress was released posthumously after Shelley was tragically killed on November 1st, 2006, at the age of 40. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, this episode was Yuli Idel's only appearance as a director on Oz. Following this episode, Idel directed the 1999 fantasy western Purgatory, starring Sam Shepard, Randy Quaid, and Oz alumni Eric Roberts in one of his many, many acting roles, as well as 2000's The Little Vampire. While Idel continued to work as a director for TV, he wouldn't direct another feature film until 2008, when he returned to his native Germany to direct the Bader-Meinhof Complex, which was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at both the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards. Idel's latest released film was 2015's Pay the Ghost, starring Nicolas Cage, and he is currently filming Club des Ingenden Metzger for German TV. And in the result of Homicide on Nomicide, if you said that Tom Mardarosian appeared in Homicide Life on the Street before appearing on Oz, you were... Absolutely wrong. The correct answer was Adrian Shelley, who appeared in Homicide's second season in the episode A Many Splendid Thing. My episode MVP this time out goes to Tim McManus. After his whole vision for M-City nearly went up in smoke and nearly losing his life, he's come back fighting with a new strategy that is hopefully going to benefit everybody. The fact that he has identified a number of groups within M-City also shows that he isn't just rushing into things, he's obviously taken his time and planned this out. He also seems to be willing to break his own moral code from time to time if it can be to someone's benefit. So for those reasons, McManus wins the MVP for this episode. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do that by heading over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Aircast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Recently, all episodes of the show have been made available on Castro Podcasts, as well as Overcast and Castbox. All of those platforms have the entire first series of Inside Oz available, as well as our Series 2 opener, The Tip. You'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes, including the watch-along of Cool Runnings, as well as my review of J.K. Simmons' multi-award winning performance in Whiplash. Help the show to continue to grow by leaving a 5-star review wherever you can, and if you have any questions or comments about anything, it doesn't have to be Oz-related, you can get in touch with the show by email at insideozpodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow the show on social media at both Instagram and Twitter using the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we are going to be looking at episode 3 of this series, Great Men, which I honestly can't remember a whole lot about off the top of my head, so I'm really looking forward to it. But until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you next time on Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everybody.